This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Megan Goes to Camp edition. It's Wednesday, January 11th, 2023. On today's show, the horror movie Megan is being called, that, by the way, is spelled with the digit three where the E would appear in the name Megan. It's being called an instant camp classic. It's about an AI-infused robot companion to a young girl grieving the loss of her parents. We will discuss, and then... Another annual trad here at The Gab, a beloved one, I'd say, by me, The Movie Club, as always anchored by Slate's own Dana Stevens. And finally, I'm calling it early. I don't need to even discuss it. Carolina Miranda's piece in the LA Times is the definitive take on TikTok, a tremendously good essay. We're uh, we're psyched to have her join us to discuss the algorithm as existential mirror. But first, joining me is uh, Julia Turner, the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. I assume the assigning editor of that piece. I don't know if I'm the assigning editor, but I'm a goading force for it, I would say. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, She's the J.K. Simmons from the Spider-Man movie, barking from behind the desk. (laughs) Where's your TikTok piece? Uh, Basically. uh, That's funny. As long as you're not J.K. Simmons from the uh, drummer movie, what was that? Whiplash? Yeah, whiplash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, okay. Good Good to know. Uh, and of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey. Am I correct that the two of you are seated actually physically next to one another? Eyes a twinkle above <laughs> a sea of podcasting oh gear. Missing oh you. Oh, my God. FOMO, FOMO. Dana's got some charming turquoise rickrack atop her uh, amusingly sleeve-buttoned uh, reddish gray shirt. <laughs> there's a, there's an there's sartorial delights. There's an apple on the table. Wow, it's good here, Steve. So J.K. Simmons from Whiplash, it is then. All right, um, <laughs> shall we make a show? Yeah, yeah let's do it. Well, why not? Right, Megan is the new Blumhouse horror pick. It stars Allison Williams as a toy developer whose specialty is getting AI technology into companionable little robot pets, but uh, she and her dev team have gone rogue and created Megan with a three where the E should be, an AI-infused humanoid companion. And this she beta tests on her niece. Her niece is now under her care following the death of her parents, and she's desperate for the solace of companionship, which she's actually not getting from her aunt. So um, what could go wrong here? The movie also stars Violet McGraw. And both Amy Donald and Jenna Davis won the voice, won the body as Megan, the little humanoid creature. Let's, uh, let's listen to a clip. And the clip we're about to hear, we hear Gemma the aunt, Katie the little girl, and Megan the robot. They're all at a dinner table and uh, Katie's refusing to eat her vegetables. And uh, Gemma and Megan kind of get into it over parenting. And then Gemma, you'll hear, turns down the volume on Megan. So check it out. Let's listen. You have to eat the toppings, Katie, not just the bread. You just did the one thing I asked you not to do. Research shows that if you force a child to eat vegetables, then they'll be less likely to choose those foods as adults. Is that so? Yes. Experts say the preferred method is to give your child the choice. It's called the division of responsibility. So we need to talk about school. Can I bring Megan? Katie, you know that's not possible. Then I'm not going. Oh, come on, Katie. 
Hey, I'm sorry. Let's just talk about it. Hey, hey, hey. Let me go. Whoa. Hey. What's going on? Hey, Katie. Go. What are you doing? Stop it. Katie, calm down. Let her go. Oh, my. <laughs> Uh, Data, I this apparently this movie's kind of blowing up on Twitter and TikTok. Um, it's a classic Blumhouse marrying the horror genre, like a crisp ninety minutes of genre thrill seeking with a kind of topical, juicy topical idea. In this instance, AI going rogue. What uh, would you make of it? Yeah, this movie really has for a January release that's a small, low-budget horror movie. It's just – it's done incredibly well and at the box office, on social media. You really can't the, – the trailers are everywhere. You can't escape that dancing creepy doll everywhere you go. Highest grossing early January movie of all time. Is that true? Yeah, it's the highest total ever for this particular weekend, which, you know, is the weekend after all the Oscar movies come out where nobody ever releases anything. But, right, but all the more but reason hey. that, that if you want to go to the movies, this – as is apparently the thing to see right now. It also is typical Blumhouse in that it's a, a high margin, high profit kind of movie. I think it costs $12 million to make and it's already made over $30 million after one weekend at the box office. So all of that said, I think I walked into it with a couple of thoughts. For one thing, I was really not in the mood for extreme gruesome scares. So I actually went to Slate's dependable scaredy scale feature, <laughs> um, which in which we uh, we rank according to other you know well-known scary movies where the chills and the gore fall in various releases. And I was pleased to see that this ranked around Beetlejuice level. (laughs) So I could go see it alone at night, as I did last night, and not walk home feeling like I was, you know, about to be murdered or haunted or something. This is one thing that I loved about Megan. First of all, let me just say that I absolutely loved Megan. It was so much fun. I suppose that you could poke holes in it, but why would you be so uncharitable towards a movie that gives you so much, so much laughter, such well judiciously um, uh, arranged chills, and I thought actually some 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 really good character moments as well, which we can get into, uh, but. Yeah, this is a PG-13 movie, which I think some uh, horror aficionados are complaining about, that it doesn't contain enough scares, that it could be gorier, that the kills could start coming a little sooner in the movie. I don't think there's really an act of violence until over an hour into this, you know, 100 hundred minute or so movie. But I, I think the PG-13 writing is great for a couple of reasons. Teenagers can go see this movie now easily, and I think it's the perfect kind of, you know, young teen date movie. It's not going to haunt your dreams forever, but it will make you squirm and scream while you're watching it, and you'll have lots to talk about later. And it's got a lot to say about AI and about parenting and um, about technology and our relationship to it as children, as as adults, um, our relation to horror movies and what we expect from them. You know, it's not one of those profound horror movies with sort of um, deep psychological implications about or or sociological implications about allegories about everyday life. It is just more scary robot kills people. But it pulls that (laughs) off just so satisfyingly. And everybody in the theater I saw it in with last night completely agreed. There were just there was lots of squealing and squirming and excited conversation on the way out. So, yes, Megan, to me, is a very auspicious beginning of the year at the movies. And I would send people to it with a full heart. Okay, so in true Blumhouse fashion, Dana has grown a third thumb out of her forehead and it's sticking (laughs) straight up. But Julia, this is like, that's a rave from Dana comparatively. What uh, would you make of this? I also really enjoyed myself at the movie theater. Among the things I liked were 
the relative lack of gore and gruesomeness for a long time. <laughs> like I liked the PG-13-ness of it as, a, as someone who does not love to be horrified at the movies. Um, and I liked the subject matter, which is what does it mean to parent in an age where technology can help you parent? And uh, let's take that anxiety of parents and just sort of play with it and make some weird warbly, wobbly, eerie music out of it. Like, great, good scenario. I I agree with you, Dana, that this is not Get Out. This is not a movie that's like using the tools of horror to actually say something profound or surprising or interesting about parenting or revolutionize your thinking about technology and parenting in modern life. It's like putting those anxieties in a blender to make a fun horror movie, yeah. I think. Like but it doesn't put on airs, and I no, really no. appreciate that. Yeah, it, but but just to clarify, like, its ambitions are lower, and sometimes I think you can feel the 12 million-ness of it. It's, you know, it feels, it feels modest in some ways, but it's just really fun and funny how it un, uh, unspools itself. And I also really enjoyed Alison Williams's turn as the aunt turned you know, reluctant mother figure, like she's really, you know, beginning to make a career out of being sort of like the dipshit lady in the horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she gets a little less dipshitty as the movie goes along. But, but She's perfectly cast in this because I was thinking that she has a bit of an AI quality as well, right? There's something about her perfectly symmetrical face and kind of all-American white girl beauty. Obviously, Get Out used that to very eerie effect. Right. In this movie, too, she's not a bad guy. But at the beginning of the movie, she she is a pretty cold guardian, right? I mean, the, the movie opens, and this isn't spoiling much because it happens, I think, even before the credits of the movie. Um, she becomes the guardian of her niece because both of her niece's parents are killed in a car accident. So there's this really pretty traumatic beginning where this young girl who's supposed to be, I think the actress who plays her is a bit too old for the part. She's probably about 11 and she's supposed to be eight or nine, uh-huh. I think. Um, but, you know, she's very lonely and depressed and grieving and her aunt is kind of a cold fish. And I think <laughs> the movie really sets out the bleakness of the little girl's uh, situation at the beginning yeah. pretty starkly. Yeah, right. And thematically, that's very rich. Like, what it makes of it, I'd like to explore a little more. But first, to be clear, I really did enjoy myself for this movie. I love the tidy 90 minutes. I love that it doesn't sprawl. It doesn't crawl up its own yin-yang. Very nicely delivered. Um, I recently saw the Knives Out sequel, which is effectively a terrible movie, in a crowded Brooklyn movie house on Thanksgiving night with a bunch of friends and a lot of beer. And... um, it was incredibly fun, even though you could tell critically it was just a total failure. Um, and this was the exact opposite. I saw this in a completely emptied out movie theater in rural upstate New York. Nobody was there. And the camp aspect landed, but it landed on me alone. And it would have been so enhanced by the gales of laughter from a, a similarly semi-drunk full movie house. Um, and I appreciated that, but I was a little distanced from it. So I don't think I loved it as much as you guys did. But by and large, I mean, Blumhouse has a wheelhouse, right? And the the, the unerringness with which they smack it out of the park is, is really impressive. And they've done it again. This is going to be probably their biggest hit, if, or certainly one of them, and deserves to be. Um, it's just so tidy, Dana, that I... I needed to, listen, just personally, for me, I thought with just a little bit, like a little more, they could have taken the niece 
aunt relationship out of the generic and and pushed it not in the direction maybe of Jordan Peele, not some like huge sprawling thematic consideration of, of, of the state of the American soul, but sort of in the direction of the sixth sense, right? Like where that relationship between mother and son is so painfully real. That's what that makes that movie really work and as a kind of almost a lasting contribution to the genre or the exorcist right it's like the despair of a parent right and obviously you can't do that exactly because she's cold the whole point of the aunt is that she's totally cold a guardian who's as robotic as her own creation right which 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 i think lands as a satire but Danny, you said something I really want to pick up pick up on you said you said it did get at this about these issues of um cyborging out our own soul to our electronic creations. Talk a little bit more about that, maybe. Well, I mean, it's it's a really primary concern of the movie. The very first thing you see is a fake ad for these creatures called perpetual pets, because I don't know if we mentioned that um, that Allison Williams' character is a toy designer, right? Well, that's why, yeah, that's how she comes to design Megan in the first place. Uh, but before Megan <laughs> is designed, or at least before she's launched, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I did my she, job, um, <laughs> she is is creating these sort of Furby-like things called perpetual pets, which you see the little girl playing with in the car right before the, the car accident where her parents die. And it's a, a really depressing toy, as as the parents observe. It's just essentially us kind of um, uh, remotely manipulated um, mechanical pet that you just feed fake pellets over and over until it poops out little plastic <laughs> poop turds or something. And uh, and there's kind of a conversation about how pointless this toy is. And the little girl herself later on says that toy is, is horrible, right? So there's a kind of critique of consumerism and of electronic babysitting before the movie has even begun. And yet this figure of Megan, the robot doll, occupies this different kind of space. She's both seen as better than the perpetual pets in terms of the emotional support she offers the child, which is in fact given almost as a selling point on the market, right? There's a very cynical ad that uses the little girl's grief as a way to sell the toy. Um, But of course, as you said, Steve, she's also a Frankenstein figure who very quickly outstrips her own creator and starts to take on her own sentience and, you know, want want to be her own primary user, as she says. And I, it's not a Luddite movie, and it's it's certainly not a, you know, blindly pro-technology movie. I think it walks that really well. And we haven't mm. mentioned the screenwriter yet, but I feel like this is one of those movies where the screenwriter should be mentioned because she's kind of the hot new thing in, in genre writing. Her name's Akila Cooper. She's already written a, um, a low-budget horror movie called Malignant a couple years ago that was a big hit as well. And I think she's writing something called The Nun 2. I haven't seen The Nun 1, so I don't know the nature of that. But I think it's horror as as well. But I think this is a movie that really lives and dies on its script. You know, I mean, it's not about the special effects. The the doll is very effective, but she's not CGI for the most part. My impression is that it's a combination of puppetry and prosthetics used on a real girl. Amy Donald, the the dancer, the child dancer who plays her, who physically plays her, not vocally. that effect is great, but uh, but that's not the point of seeing the movie. What you're really there for, as we've been talking about, I think, is just the tautness of the story, you know. And even though the beats are predictable, I mean, it's a genre movie, right? Like, mm-hmm. of course you know that yeah. when some jerky person appears on the periphery and starts to mistreat the little girl and, and her aunt, that they are probably going to be the next bait for Megan the evil dancing doll. But um, but watching the way those things unfold and the the rhythm with which those beats are dispersed is just it's really skillfully and pleasurably done. So bravo to Akila Cooper. I want to keep on seeing what she writes. I do think the other thing that Cooper does so well here and part of what makes what carries you through the ride 
is that the parenting ideas are interesting, right? Like Meg, even Megan the doll isn't an evil doll. You know, the the the, the what the doll has been programmed to do is to protect their partner child at all costs. And so it ends up becoming sort you know, it's almost more like a commentary on helicopter parenting than a commentary mm. on AI. You know, it's sort of like, okay, so if you take that impulse to the ultimate extreme and you try to protect your child from all potential possible harm in a no holds barred fashion, like what do you get? <laughs> like violence and mayhem. <laughs> and, you know, a child who is like stunted and incapable of real emotional development. Like that's so much more interesting than Chucky to me. Mm. I mean, I don't know. To be fair, have I ever seen a full full Chucky movie? I don't know. So so apologies to Chucky if in fact Chucky is raising similarly I mean, interesting I questions. Will say, if you're put if you're putting off seeing this movie because you think like I've seen the evil doll movie already or I know that trope. I mean, I, I have seen at least the first Chucky long ago, and I do think that this goes to different 21st century places. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's not what it seems to be from the commercials, but the commercials are very effective too. The commercials <laughs> yeah. make this look like it's like it's going to be some extremely scary, almost like a the Ring, right? I mean, the way the uncanny way that the doll yeah. moves, yeah. you think it's going to be like one of those extreme horror movies. That is not the vibe of this movie at all. And it earns that moment. It takes us a long time to get to the moment when, you know, she's doing her strange contortionist dance. But um, but it's really worth the ride. Okay. All right. That's three three thumbs up with um, degrees of enthusiasm. But check it out, Megan, and shoot us an email. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think about this movie. Let's move on. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast we discuss business. Dana, what uh, what do we have today? Steve, our only item of business this week is to tell listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. We've been on a roll of good listener questions. Maybe that's because we recently had our listener call-in show, and we had lots of good questions come in for that, more than we could answer. This week's question is from a listener named John, who writes, Hey guys, I've noticed that this year I've enjoyed Dana's negative movie reviews more than anything else I've read. Thank you, John. Because I know how optimistic and positive she usually is, he should see me off mic, I appreciated the genuine dislike rather than her just dunking to be mean. It made me wonder, as critics, is it more fun to bash something? This is actually a common, I feel like this is a common cocktail party conversation among those who write criticism or are curious about writing criticism. As a cultural critic, is it is it fun to dislike something? Obviously, pans often get more clicks than any other kind of reviews. And, uh, and it's almost harder in a way to get people interested in um, really sincere raves about something. So I think that could be a fun topic for us to discuss in Slate Plus this week. If you're a Slate Plus member, please stick around for that segment at the end of the show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. All right. Well, Dana Stevens. You, as I've discovered over the last 15 or so years, are a woman of funny little hates beneath that Mary Poppins, <laughs> twee, Berkeley grad student surface. You hate games, anniversaries, and best of lists. And uh, uh, the Slate Movie Club is really all three when you look at it, um, and <laughs> which is why I love it. So here we are. Uh, this is another one of the annual rituals we have at the show. But before we really dive in and get into the meat of it, Dana, why don't you just explain to our listeners what the movie club is? Movie club is just it's a feature that preexisted me at Slate, um, but that I was very happy to become the leader of when I became Slate's movie critic back in 2006. It's just an end of year roundtable about the year's movies where I invite three or four. It was three this year. Other critics from different publications. We share our 10 best lists of the year. And then we just start a long conversation. It runs over the course of a whole week. Uh, It's usually about um, 
20 to 25 total posts over the course of that week uh, in which we don't review movies. It's kind of a relief to not have to, you know, do the the, the review dance of not spoiling and deciding if you like it or not. We just really get into the weeds about the year's movies. We might be a whole post about, you know, one scene that you loved, one performance that you hated, one trend that you couldn't get away from. And it almost always goes really unexpected places. It's just, it's to me, it's just a chance to kibitz with some of my favorite other writers on film for the year. And it usually runs, and this year it did as well, um, the year between Christmas and New Year's. Can I tell you guys a hidden secret of my history with Slate? Please. Oh, my gosh, yes. My job application to Slate, my cover letter that I sent to David Plotz in 2002, was about how much I liked the Slate Movie Club. Oh, that was before I was even a part of it. That's great. I know. It's a great format because Mm. it's like because it allows critics to argue, which obviously is a format that we enjoy on this show of critics arguing. (laughs) But like it allows you and the people you convene to engage with the work in such an interesting way. Um, And I, I, I appreciated your request for someone to make the passionate case for why the ending of Nope made sense. And I will... Uh, not call out by name your interlocutors, but there were some defenders, but not any who quite mounted the actual explanation that I was looking for. There were some people who were like, it worked for me, but I wanted them to say why. Yeah, exactly. No, that's kind of the point of, of Movie Club, I think, in a way, is, is that it's it's playful and it's a chance to do things like that, to say like, hey, I've read all your reviews of Nope. I know whether you liked it or not. You know, I just want you to explain to me what the vertical tennis shoe was doing in the flashback, which I will notice that no one picked up the gauntlet and explained <laughs> that part of the movie to me. Yes, that was my opening post this year was essentially, you know, here's a movie this year. I was sort of writing about disappointments of the year. And Nope was a complex disappointment because I'm really glad I saw it, you know, loved the first hour of it, still think about it often. But, you know, did it end up on my 10 best list or be a movie that will stick with me as one of the greats of 2022? No. Mm. Yeah. I I also love that it lets you survey the year. I mean, I always learn about a ton of movies that... I should see and have not yet seen, despite the fact that we basically watch a movie every week for this and we spend some time each week looking at all the movies we could be talking about and then picking which one to talk about, like still. And somehow, particularly this year, I felt like there were a lot of smaller international or independent films that were mentioned that I weren't even on my radar as things I haven't seen yet, um, including Athena and I think... Uh, St. Omer were two films that I came away feeling like, oh, man, I've got to see those. Well, this year in particular, and this came up again and again in the club because it's impossible to talk about the movie landscape right now and not talk about this. But release strategies have just become so confusing for, for, for new movies. I mean, it's not at all surprising that two foreign films like Athena and St. Omer would go under your radar. And I guess that could have happened in the pre-streaming and pre-COVID days as well. But complicated by, you know, the sudden burst of streaming channels and, you know, theaters being in danger because of COVID, et cetera, it's really almost impossible to keep track of most new movies that are released now. I mean, I see probably 200 movies a year or something like that. Not all new, but combined, I would say that I probably see, I actually talked about this with our editor, Dan Coyce, because at one point I said hundreds of movies later and he was querying me like hundreds, don't you mean scores? <laughs> and I proved to him mathematically that I probably see somewhere between 150 and 200 movies every year. 
And yet, I hadn't seen a whole bunch of the stuff these people were talking about either, and in some cases had not even heard of them because, you know, things are released on, um, you know, bespoke little streaming channels that you don't necessarily get, or they play in theaters for one week, or they go on Netflix and no one promotes them, which is what happened to Glass Onion, which, by the way, Steve, come back from our last segment, I thought Glass Onion was really fun and really good, Um, (laughs) maybe not as good as the first Knives Out, but I think when you mentioned that you saw it in a theater full of happy laugh, laughing drunk people, that's a pretty good sign that it's a movie that should have played in theaters longer. Whether you love yes. Glass Onion or not, it's a movie that played very well in the theater and that yeah, manipulated the audience very skillfully. And I feel like that's not being valued enough anymore. I read about this some in Movie Club, just that seeing something in a movie theater, as we all just did with Megan, just changes your experience of it profoundly. And that's just not me saying individual people should go to the movies, right? I mean, maybe in your particular circumstances, streaming something makes more sense. It's an argument to the industry to not throw away the money that's right there on the table for people that love to go to the movies. Yeah. Okay. So setting aside the fact that you're dead to me now and forever for including Top Gun Maverick on this list of 15... What did you learn by assembling this list? I mean, not, you know, maybe, maybe maybe about your own feelings about a movie that you'd already seen and then the decision to include it reacquainted you with your love of it. But also more generally, like this, this is sort of an occasion for you and the best critics out there to take the state of the, you know, the sort of temperature of Hollywood and the state of the industry and the medium, really, which is not at anything like an apex, especially relative to streaming TV. So on the first one, you assemble the list. What surprised you? What did you learn about about yourself in this year in the movies? Hmm. Yeah, the list to me feels like it's a separate moment because I I always publish my list in a in a slate piece several weeks before Slate Movie Club even happens. But I but it is published as well in the first you know my first post of the list links to it. Um, What did I learn from making the list? I mean. I think for one thing, and this is just as true of any kind of uh, artistic or creative endeavor where you're being asked to just um, be yourself and find yourselfness, you know, that can be one of the hardest things to do is to let yourself just love the things that you love and not feel like maybe they're not the right ones or I haven't looked far enough. I don't think that you need to over-research things like writing a list. And I thought of this one um, unrelated to the movie club. I did that that British Film Institute sight and sound poll, you know, a few months ago, which they just published the, the results of recently. Um, how can you possibly look among all the films of all time and pick the 10 greatest films of all time according to any criterion other than this was special to me, this was moving to me. So that's what I go with on all these lists. Also, just as a writer, I pick things for my list that I still have something to say about because I'm going to have to write a paragraph talking about a movie that I've probably already written about, maybe podcasted about, maybe seen a couple times. So often I will leave something off just because I think I enjoyed that, I loved it, but I'm done with it and I have nothing more to say. So there has to be some juice left in that movie that you can at least get a little blurb out of it mm. to talk talk about it with people. And that was the case of everything I chose. So in a lot of cases, I, I went back to something that I had seen very early in the year. Marcel the Shell is a good example, mm, the the, um, yeah. the animated movie, the Jenny Slate um, playing a little little tchotchke man. Um, that was so moving and special to me when I saw it back early in the year. I think it was in late spring or early summer. And I remember thinking it's pretty early in the year to, to decide this is one of the best of the year. But I'll keep it in my pocket just in case. And uh, And in fact, it was an absolute must for the list. It was just a lock, you know, because there wasn't anything else like it all year. And then the state of the movies, what, any conclusions? 
I mean, I guess I've already talked about it a bit, but something that we couldn't get away from, even though our editor, Dan Coyce, urged us to not talk about it so much, we couldn't help it. It's 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 this question of what where ha- movies are happening, where they should be happening, where cinema is going to be located in the future as theatrical gets to be less and less a part of movie release strategies. Um, that is just that's that's something that film critics it's our livelihood right and it's also as i i wrote a whole post about this it's also in a way our legacy you know i feel like there is a part of being a film critic that should be about advocacy in a way advocacy for an art form that is changing really rapidly and in some ways changing for the worse and being overtaken by commerce you know and that there is something to be said for um being a critic as an act of fighting for the things that you love and mm. the art form that you love and for it to survive in a form that future generations will be able to have that experience that we're talking about of just even laughing in a movie theater and squealing at a horror movie, right? I mean, those are profound social experiences. So that I feel like is something that kept on coming up in different people's posts without me even prompting them with a question about it. People would, would mention a specific physical memory of a movie they watched. I've talked about watching Marcel the Shell next to sitting next to a close friend and realizing we were both crying by the end of it, right? Or, um, I also had an entire post about a movie, a small horror release that we talked about here on the Gabfest last year. Remember The Black Phone, another mm. Blumhouse release? Um, oh, absolutely. And a very different feeling, not a campy movie at all, but a sort of gritty social realist movie about these underparented children in the 70s and their fear of being snatched by a serial killer. Um, and that movie really stuck with me because it was original, because it had a voice and a mood and a tone all its own. And that's the kind of movie that I want to continue to exist in theaters, even though the black phone would play perfectly fine on a small screen. It's not a big spectacle or anything like that. But it's just nice to have movies out there where you can just go to the movies and say, let's see something. Let's see something good. Nobody's talking about it. This looks good. Let's go see it. And I miss that aspect of of going to movies, movies that aren't events necessarily or big franchise releases, but are just small personal movies that have have some idiosyncratic feel of their own. I will say reading it this year, even though you guys are still talking a lot about the economics and contours of film as an industry, it feels a little less uh, movies are dying than the last two years. <laughs> like, you know, like there's, I, I, I just am thinking about the conversations we were having this time year about Power of the Dog, which is a movie that has not aged that well in my mind and which sort of felt to me when I was watching it like like it was grabbing me by the throat and saying like remember cinema like you <laughs> sweeping vistas like ruffles at the collars like yeah, this exactly. is a thing that humans do they put these images on the screen and then they watch them like do it <laughs> you know even though that movie for all of its you know kind of uh, glacial beautiful portraits of the work that glaciers rod upon the land um you know, actually, one of the things I liked about it when we talked about it was that it like had a twist ending and had a plot and wasn't all just people like mooning at the horizon or whatever. Um, I don't know, you guys, there just was like a lot of like, variety and verve. You know, this is a year when there were a bunch of interesting horror movies that got people's butts in seats. And there was Top Gun, which, God, Steve, I think I had blacked out on how much you hated Top Gun. And I hadn't realized that your dislike had lingered. Like, I've, I only like it more <laughs> the further away from it I get, which maybe maybe uh, is its own commentary. But um, I don't know, everything, everywhere, all at once, like, it was it was 
there, there's like a little bit of color returning to the cheeks of the patient, it feels like, this year in the discussion. Like, you know, there's just a little bit more mm-hmm. happening. Before we go, Dana, we'd be remiss if you didn't sh- shout out the other critics in the movie club. Who did you who did you have this year? Yeah, I wanted to do this because, you know, like I said, movie club goes up between Christmas and New Year's. And as a result, I mean, some people, I think, go as a tradition that holiday week and read it. But I think a lot of people miss it because they're traveling. They're with family. They're doing holiday stuff. And it's all sitting there to read. It's just, you know, 20 posts or 25 posts of really juicy, specific movie writing. And so I wanted to sh- shout out the critics who did it this year. Bill Gabiri from from Vulture, who is, a, I call him at one point, the scarecrow to my Dorothy in movie club. He's done it so many times and is a friend in real life. And just I have such fun, comfortable conversations with him. But I had two new critics as well, or new to movie club, who had never done it before. David Sims from The Atlantic and from the beloved film podcast Blank Check. And Beatrice Loeza, who was a really good participant because she knows a lot about film history. Her prior experience includes writing for Criterion and, you know, doing a lot of um, classic film writing as well as some contemporary criticism. And she brought a really great perspective. I loved her post, for example, on Blonde, the Marilyn Monroe movie, which, like me, she really detested. But she wrote about it so beautifully. So, um, yeah, if you want to get a real sampling of different kinds of film writing from different critics, go look at the movie club this year. All right. Fabulous. And as always, you know, email us. I mean, this is a great one for you to shoot us an email on and just tell us what you saw, what you loved, what you missed, what you want to see and uh, where we got it wrong. All right, let's move on. If Franz Kafka were to reconceive the metamorphosis for our era, he might decide to ditch the novella in favor of a series of serial TikToks. That's the grabby lead of a piece in the LA Times by Carolina Miranda. Carolina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You didn't hear my up top, tippy top um, introduction, but I called this, uh, in my estimation, the definitive piece uh, on TikTok, certainly of any that I've read. Congratulations. It is amazing, amazing piece of (laughs) cultural journalism and criticism. So we're very psyched to have you on to discuss it. Um, Thank you. Yeah, you're very, very welcome. I mean, thank you. I mean, it sincerely, you get some really interesting places in the course of the essay, one of which in particular I'd love to get to eventually is TikTok is the Uribos of looking. It's just so wonderfully put. But let's let's start a little more crudely. You say that at this current moment, TikTok is in a, a kind of a crosshairs. Um, but explain a little bit for our listeners what you meant by that. Well, it is insanely popular. It is probably the most uh, popular social media app right now with more than 3 billion downloads globally. It is also the target of the U.S. government, and that is what has put it in the crosshairs. Um, Questions over how uh, the amount of data that the app um, grabs from its users and how that data is used specifically by its Chinese-owned parent company, ByteDance, has put it on the roster of U.S. legislators. So there were a number of U.S. states that had banned the app from government devices over uh, concerns related to data. And um, with the latest spending bill that was passed at the end of last year, it has now been banned from all U.S. government apps. Yeah, so it's a super interesting moment for the app. But I will confess that that this piece in part came out of, um, you know, you you have been organically spending time on the app. You are one of its 3 billion users. And, you know, we had been talking around the LA Times culture team about sort of what is this aesthetic that everyone's spending so much time with? You know, like Instagram 
is an, a comprehensible aesthetic, a mockable aesthetic, um, a, a describable aesthetic. But TikTok, because its experience is so fractured, it felt like it had an aesthetic, but I had not seen any critic describe it to me or articulate it or help me understand what the heck is going on there. And I did notice you continuing to post really interesting, funny memes from TikTok. And so (laughs) I think part of the genesis of this piece, it's fair to say, is me being like, Carlina, please explain it to me. What is it? (laughs) But yeah, part of the genesis of this piece is me just sitting on my couch late at night, scrolling through TikTok and sending the weirdest ones I find to my Instagram stories. So, you know, I think it's interesting because Julia at one point did literally say to me, you know, I'd love a piece on TikTok for you. And I really struggled with it for months because, you know, TikTok is so atomized and the content is so directed by algorithm that there's always this feeling that in writing about TikTok, you're writing about your own TikTok, but not anybody else's because TikTok is a highly individualized um, experience. And so, the genesis of this piece was literally me just sitting there for months and looking at videos and trying to find across this vast array of content, you know, what are some of the similarities or echoes, the visual echoes that I'm beginning to see. And I think one of the things that struck me immediately is how, you know, I would have these creators that I liked or things that I followed But the way the app is designed, it almost minimizes that individual presence. Like it's more about TikTok than it is any one um, content creator. And, and, you know, the, the content handles are really tiny. There's very little layout around the video. In fact, TikTok gives the entire screen over to video. So it's almost like you're on a video call with someone else. And 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 I think that was when I began to kind of get a handle on the app that it's 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 this feigned intimacy in a way that it's it TikTok doesn't put a frame around its content the way that Instagram does, or you know, Facebook with its dull blue uh frames. Um that this was really something that that felt very different from that, that felt more informal, that felt more intimate, and that felt a lot weirder. <laughs> something that I don't understand as a non-TikTok user, although I see my daughter using it a lot, so I know what it looks like to have a vertical stream of TikTok videos coming at you. But I don't understand why, for one thing, and this is something you say in the piece, TikTok is more addictive or considered to be more you know, sticky than other social media sites. What about the algorithmic selection makes that the case? And... Also, this is a very broad question, but since you don't, as you say, follow people on TikTok, right? You don't create this community of um, of fellow users the way you do in a place like Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. Um, what happens after you dive into that stream of vertical videos? I mean, what what is it choosing the next video for you based on? Well, I think the stickiness comes from its algorithmic nature. And so what TikTok does is, you know, it basically... It's following how long do you watch a video? Do you like the video? Do you share the video? And then it delivers similar content in that vein. So Mm. that's part of what makes it so sticky is that I see on TikTok in a way, in a way, a lot of things that I would just never see on TV, a lot of comedians of color. uh, I'm seeing... 
a sophisticated levels of humor that I just have, have not made it into a lot of situation comedy, uh, a lot of absurdity, just a lot of things that that would that no Hollywood executive would ever greenlight. And so I think that's part of its stickiness. It's it's specificity at your taste. Um, it certainly determines a lot of that based on your navigational habits and also your phone settings. And that's also part of what makes the algorithm creepy, like your language settings, your geography, um, the way you are are using the app, um, it will determine that. Um, so I think that's the first part of of why it is so appealing. And I think it's really the, you know, people talk about TikTok, they talk so much, and I say this in the story, they talk about the stars of TikTok, the people with, you know, millions of followers and hundreds of millions of followers and the TikTok collab houses. But the fact is that the spine of TikTok are the randos just delivering the weird little 10, 15 second, 30 second videos that just keep you scrolling. I do think there's this interesting tension in what you describe here between the way in which the structure of the app de-emphasizes the content creators, but also brings them closer to you. Like, I'm struck by those two observations of, like, it's not about, oh, I'm a follower of such and such content creator, and so I'm going to go to their channel and dive deep and do, you know, look at everything they've ever made. You're spending time on TikTok, not with a particular creator, but then also that feeling you describe in the essay of, like, you know, one of your favorite commentators is curled up on a under a fleece blanket on his couch making fun of other people's TikToks and you're curled up on your couch at home. So you sort of just feel like you're on a video call with him. Like that combination between anonymity and intimacy feels unusual and like potentially oppositional, but sounds like it's actually not in the in the lived experience. Um, it, it also felt like in your kind of multiple ways of looking at the aesthetics of TikTok. There were a couple tensions like that. So I'm I'm kind of curious what other observations you came up with about what what TikTok makes us look at and how it makes us look. I mean, I think one of the things I wrote about a little bit was that aspect of how the app, because it's a video app and because so many of its videos are so short, um, really prizes this kind of manic levels of performance. And, um, you know, you have to grab on TikTok, you basically have six or seven seconds to grab somebody's attention. And so what you have is an app that, you know, if Instagram sort of grabs you with its general glossiness, um, this is an app that grabs you with movement, with heightened commentary, with um, music, with these very sort of extreme moments of um, performance. And it's interesting because as part of the research for the piece, I listened to a lot of podcasts in which they were interviewing TikTok content creators, you know, and a lot of them were talking about the exhaustion of what it means to come up with those segments um, on a regular basis, that there was, there's almost something a little um, as entertaining as it is on the receiving end of those videos. There's something a little dystopic about people having to continuously increase sort of continuously turn up the volume on the actions they are doing in order to continuously draw attention. I think we all know that the internet and these social media companies prize um, uh, content that makes us angry, that makes us more emotional, that makes us react. And in TikTok, you can see that happening. If you go to a single content producer's page, you'll see them start with something 
kind of mellow and then go turning up the volume on it, go turning up the volume on this performativity. And I sometimes wonder, you know, how is that how is that going to translate to real life? Is that why people are having uh, meltdowns in Trader Joe's because everything has turned mm. into a performance? Um, you know, I don't know. I'm not I'm not a sociologist, but I think that there is an aspect to that that, you know, that's, that's kind of a little scary. Like, do we always have to be on, you know, in this really extreme way? Yeah, I mean, what I, among the many things I love about this piece is that it's um, it gives full shrift to the idea of the internet and TikTok in particular as a kind of dystopia without it all being Luddite. Um, you know, you've derived so much from the from the medium in one sense. And uh, the other thing I love is that is that to the extent the internet has been a dystopia, it's that it sort of promised to be this universal window into all of human reality, and it turns out to be this you know, radically narrow-casted mirror in some sense. Um, I've been verbose in describing your piece. You're wonderfully pithy. I just have to quote. Uh, You go through and you have sort of these bullet points, these numbered points, like the TikTok aesthetic is an anti-aesthetic. TikTok's non-aesthetic promotes a perceived informality. Um, On TikTok, you don't follow people, you follow an algorithm. Um, But then the one that I love in particular is just so... Great. TikTok is an Ouroboros of looking. Expand on that one a little bit, maybe. Ooh, that one. I always love any excuse to use the word Ouroboros in a story. And and when the editors let me get it in in a subhead, I'm like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That one was, you know, one of the most popular functions of TikTok is the duet function in which you can place your video alongside another Mm. um, person's video. And one day I was, there was this video that is super popular of, um, that had gone viral over the summer of this Asian man dancing in a square. I think it's in, it's unclear whether he was, it was China or Vietnam, but it became really popular and people were duetting it. And at one point there was a button on the video that said, see who has duetted this video. And I clicked on it and I was kind of stunned to discover that most of the duets were not people offering hammy reactions and commentary on the video. Instead, they were simply watching the video, but they had recorded themselves watching the video and then posted that video to the internet. And there was something really striking about that, that as much as this app encourages this manic performativity at all times, it also was this way of people reacting to other people in, in a way that felt more heartfelt than just clicking like or being like, oh, great, you know, uh, clap emoji, clap emoji. Um, and there was something a little poignant about that. It's like the app for all of its like bizarre algorithmic dystopia has these moments of incredible um, poignance. And I was really struck by that about how the function of being able to put yourself next to somebody else looking at them as a way uh, not of judging, but simply observing and saying, hey, I'm observing, I'm looking at you, was something that that just really struck me, you know, that about the oddness uh, of this app. Because I think everything else, you know, on Instagram, if I'm looking at Kylie Jenner's Instagram page, she's not looking at me, I'm not looking at her, I'm clicking like and maybe leaving a comment. This This feels much more... There's something much more personable, even though it is mediated entirely by this app. Carolina, clearly we could talk about this uh, indefinitely, um, but I really want to thank you for a wonderful piece and for coming on the podcast. Thank you.
And I urge our listeners to seek it out. That title, once again, is TikTok's Addictive Anti-Aesthetic Has Already Conquered Culture by Carolina Miranda. On the, it's on the LA Times website. We'll link to it. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What, uh, what do you have? Steve, not to rub it in, but in honor of Julia being here in the studio with me today, I'm going to do a Julia-centered or Julia-directed endorsement because I know in the past, Julia, um, there was a Bach piano. It was the Partitas, right? It was the Bach piano Partitas that I sent you down the road of as some of my favorite walking and thinking music. And you've made that some of your walking and thinking music, I'm now among the like (laughs) 0.00001% of Andrew Rangel fans in the universe, according to Spotify, thanks to you. (laughs) Duking it out with me for the top spot. (laughs) So uh, we've talked before about this other pianist who I know personally. So I guess this is kind of log rolly, but really it's just that I'm lucky enough to personally know and be friends with an incredible pianist and uh, and transcribe and arranger. Her name's Eleanor Bindman. And um, she's done a few... Her big thing is transcribing Bach's music for piano. Bach never composed for piano, but his work was often composed for keyboard. It works very well in that format on the modern piano. Transcribes them for piano and specifically transcribes things for forehand piano. Her big thing is to sit at a piano with someone else and play a duet. I've seen her do this in person. It's incredible. And, you know, the four hands together do things that two hands alone couldn't do. Um, so her latest masterwork of transcription is that she took box orchestral suites, which obviously is a pretty complex piece of music involving a whole orchestra, and transcribed them for this forehand piano format. The album, it's a double album, and you can either stream it or get it on CD. It's called J.S. Bach Orchestral Suites, transcribed for Piano Duet by Eleanor Bindman. And the two pianists are Eleanor Bindman and Susan Sobolewski. Um, it's just it's just great music. Eleanor really understands and loves Bach. I mean, I say that as if I could be somebody who would understand him better than her. All I know is I've loved Bach for decades, and he's been my favorite classical musician. And her particular style of interpretation is just one I could listen to all day. So if I were you, I would not only listen to this album, but follow Eleanor on YouTube, on whatever social media platform you're on, and just learn about Bach from her. She's amazing. She posts little clips of herself playing from time to time. She posts things about her concerts. And if you have her on your radar, you will always be listening to great music. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to put those into all of my algorithms. Um, I will say my listening is so influenced by you guys. I got complimented for my McCoy Tyner uh, tunes when we had some folks over before Christmas, Steve. And um, also I've been listening to the Joskin Depress motets that you recommended a couple months ago. My so, street find that changed my yeah, life. Yeah, every time that my children or husband come into my office and there's just sort of like a kind of tonal chanting. They're like, Angelic monks. They're like, what's going on in here? Like, I think it looks like I'm about to like have a ritual sacrifice before I like dig into my latest like email barrage or something. Um, I think they find it a little bit spooky, but they are great, great music. So I will. Um, I'll give this a give this a try. Oh, fabulous! All right, Julia, what do what do you have? All right, two quick things before I endorse. I have a baking endorsement as per usual at this time of year. But before we get to it, number one, 
I want to say that in addition to being pro the tradition of sending a holiday card, I'm also pro abandoning that tradition on any given year that it doesn't work for your life, which turned out to be this year. (laughs) We got a bunch of COVID over the holidays. Guess what? No guilt. No card this year. We'll come back to it next year. Not an obligation. Just a joy. And then thing two is I mentioned on our call-in show last week um, that I wrote a piece about this family recipe about potato balls. And that piece is now live. And we will put a link to it in our show page. So if you want to read in slightly more personal than I usually write essay about family and tradition. We'll share the link. But uh, speaking of family baking traditions, I also have a baking endorsement. Okay, well, I think regular listeners know that I love to bake, and we undertook a number of baking projects at the beginning of the year. Uh, And one of them was that I finally tried a cookbook that I'm pretty sure I learned about in the L.A. Times cooking newsletter, which is a great newsletter. Uh, And it is from a cookbook called A Good Day to Bake, by Benjamina Ebwehi, who was a contestant on Great British Bake Off, which I had sort of forgotten. And I don't think of Great British Bake Off contestants as like people whose cookbooks I'm snapping up necessarily. Like I love that show and I enjoy watching it and I actually think I have a new season to catch up on, which is... Mary Berry has a lovely cookbook, I must say. A delightful thing to uh, learn about. But A Good Day to Bake, I flipped through it a bunch of times. I haven't really cooked from it because it's this really interesting array of baking recipes that like kind of concertedly evade definition like there's sort of tahini and sweet things and rosemary and sweet things and molasses and savory things and it just feels like it wants to defy your sweet savory binaries in your mind and it's like a it got really unusual flavor combinations in it so we made for my husband's birthday um a olive oil flourless chocolate cake that you cover in a chocolate ganache frosting, which is that kind of frosting that you sort of pour over a low flat cake and then it makes this really beautiful glossy finish. And I had never made a a ganache frosting. My dad used to make a, a different flourless chocolate cake, so we thought we would make it for Christmas and then we were too ambitious and had too many recipes, but I had all the ingredients on hand. So we made it for my husband's birthday and, um, Wow, it is a good recipe. You use ground almonds. It's, I mean, it's actually gluten-free if you want to eat gluten-free things. I love olive oil cakes with citrus. And at first, when I first tasted it, I was like, do I like olive oil with chocolate? Like, I don't not like it, but maybe this is just making me realize I want to experiment with flourless chocolate cake recipes. But it was one of those recipes that, like, aged really well. Like, each day of the cake was, like, even better than the prior day of the cake. So I'm now all in on the unusual flavor combos in A Good Day to Bake by Benjamina Ebuehi. I would recommend that cookbook, the LA Times cooking newsletter, and in particular, the olive oil flourless chocolate cake, which is both delicious and kind of one of those magic trick recipes where you feel like you've made something that would not get terrible marks on Great British Bake Off, despite the fact that it took you a lot longer than it would take them on that show. Uh, That is wonderful. I'm ordering it as we speak. Enjoy. Um, Okay. So yeah, thank you. Um, For my endorsement, you know, we have this, I think, altogether fruitless circular debate on this show, which I look forward to having ad infinitum with you two about whether generations are a real concept. And dead to Mm -hmm. me, Dana Stevens made fun of me when I said, well, you know, the Renaissance isn't quote unquote real. It's not. The very first thing covered in my daughter's historiography class at Smith College was, you know, on whether or not periodization represents a, in some sense, empirically real thing or whether it's a retrospectively applied, often highly selective and interested 
conceptual category, as in the Renaissance, which is one of the most famous examples of this. It wasn't until Jacob Burkhart in the 19th century used the term and wrote a whole book, a two-volume book about it, that anyone thought of the Renaissance as a Renaissance. People in the Renaissance did not think that they were in a Renaissance or a rebirth. So generations are a very similar thing. They're a, a way of conceptualizing reality. They are not reality itself. They, they are a product of the human imagination's need to create coherent narratives. They're real in that sense, which to me is very real as a literary critic. But anyway, that said, Zadie Smith has written a definitive essay about the movie that most stayed with me. It's not the one that I most enjoyed or most admired necessarily, but the movie that most stayed with me from the previous year, Tar. Oh, I'm so excited to read this essay. I haven't read it yet, but I've heard about it. In it, you know, she treats the generations as an important conceptual category. Um, so let me just quote briefly from it. Um, and and that, was, that was the blindingly original insight of the essay, was that this is a movie as much as anything about, about sort of gener- the generational warfare that we're all undergoing right now. Um, and she says, the young are always right in their indictment of the old. The boomers were right about the greatest generation. We, the Gen Xers, were right about the boomers. The millennials are right about us. Still one wonders how these same millennials stuck with the name that seems to enshrine the idea of their youth itself will now deal with the imminent loss of their own. Up to now, when it comes to generational combat, they've been right about everything as every generation is in its own way only ever missing that one vital piece of data about time and its passing, how it feels. Uh, this essay just lands and lands and lands and lands. And it, it did something marvelous as well. It explained to me something I already knew with a precision um, and, and depth of feeling that I couldn't quite bring to the inchoate thought, which is why this movie lingered, even though I didn't exactly love it. So highly recommended. It's got a great title too. Kudos to the headline writer. It's called The Instrumentalist. It's by Zadie Smith in the New York Review of Books, and we will link to it. Dana, you're not dead to me. You could never be dead to me, but but on life support. Uh, thank you so much. This was fun. Wait, I forget. What, what did Dana do to you this week? <laughs> she, but what it, A, she did to you, FOMO'd the shit out of me at the top of the show. Oh, and then I B, see. Well, it's an no, ancient grudge, then, Julia. He can no longer remember <laughs> the origins of his hatred. Well, no, I can remember the origins. I, I, I can remember the, the, the backstory, the beginning, the middle, and the end. But, but it's really putting Top Gun Maverick on your top 15 of the year that makes us like Zoroastrian style enemies. <laughs> I just can't believe we got through our Megan segment without you guys comparing me to a killer robot. I didn't even get to try talking like in a slightly harmonic metallic voice. <laughs> I can't really do it. I retired that joke after just watching it thud too often from my mouth. Because of my having... deep wells of humanity. <laughs> there we go. Okay, like Allison Williams, you found the heart within your icy <laughs> frame. <laughs> Uh, Julia, this was this was especially fun. Thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Happy New Year. Thank you. You too. All right. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by Nicholas Bertel. 
Our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Hello, and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Today, we answer a listener question from John, who writes... I've noticed that this year I've enjoyed Dana's negative movie reviews more than anything else I've read. Because I know how optimistic and positive she usually is, I appreciated the genuine dislike, rather than her just dunking to be mean. It made me wonder, as critics, is it more fun to bash something? Uh, this is like a surprising full circle to Steve's intro to the show of calling you Mary Poppins <laughs> and then calling you, <laughs> describing your hatreds, possibly not accurately. Um, but uh, as the person who is most regularly producing criticism on the show, Dana, we will start with you. Is it more fun to bash something or to praise something? You know, I think now at this point in my career, I, having done this for many years, I don't think that bashing things is the most fun. I, and this may also be, you know, generational to some degree. It may be that when I started out, you know, before I wrote for Slate, I had a movie blog. The way that I got this job, which is a very early 2000s way to, to wangle your way into film criticism and journalism, is that I had my own independent movie blog that I wrote just for myself to have a writing exercise. I wrote it under a pseudonym. Her name was Liz Penn. Um, and... Liz Penn was was more acid-tongued, I would say, than the Dana Stevens of 2023. She didn't hate everything by any means, but I, I feel like I channel her sometimes. And in fact, I get this, uh, this there's sort of like a, a, a homegrown, uh, my partner will sometimes say, this was a real Liz Penn moment, you know, when I really <laughs> take off on a movie now. Um, and maybe at that point, I did have fun with bashing. But I think now that I'm more challenged and more excited to write a, about a movie I truly love than a movie I truly hated, there are, of course, exceptions. I mean, if you hate not only the movie itself, but really what it stands for, if you really feel like it's sort of a moral blot on the film landscape, then it can be really fun to write a takedown. I'm thinking about you with Promising Young Woman. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, that's hardly even a review like that was, you know, six weeks after the movie had been released and it was just still haunting me. It was just nagging at me that everybody seemed to be warmly receiving this movie that I considered to be basically evil. You know, <laughs> I just feel like the values that movie evinces are so anti-feminist and yet it's so on a high horse about how feminist it is. And no one was writing that piece. And it was really satisfying to write that. And it also got a huge amount of pickup because I think, you know, a lot of people had been sitting uneasily with that movie for six weeks and wanted to hear somebody walk through in a very spoiler filled fashion, everything that was wrong with it. So that's an example. Or The Whale, a movie that I recently wrote about that I hated. I feel like The Whale is a really... Uh, dumb, <laughs> mean <laughs> movie, and I actively don't want it to do well in award season, even though Brendan Fraser is great in it, and it's great that he's back, and I hope he gets more wonderful parts, but that is not a wonderful part. It is it is a bad movie, and I think it is a movie with bad um, ideas that it's trying to put forth, and you can read my review in Slate to see why. So that one was a little bit more of a pleasure to write, and, and I've actively tried to block the whale from getting recognition in all of the awards groups that I've <laughs> Um, but I didn't need that much blocking because I don't think it was going to get a lot of votes anyway. Uh, but Babylon, for example, the Damien Chazelle movie, which I recently wrote a negative review of, I didn't enjoy hating that movie. I think Chazelle's really talented. I think that movie fails, but it's admirable that it tries to do some of the big things that it tries to do. And so it was a little bit more of a mixed review and a sort of regretful hand-wringing, like, hmm, I hope that this 
this director finds his way. And, you know, bravo for him for getting a lot of money (laughs) to do something really unusual and that some people are going to love, but it's not for me. The most boring kind of review to write, and I try to just turn down these assignments now, is is like a perfectly good movie that is putting forth, you know, good things into the world, but does it in a boring way. Like an example would be a sort of, you know, a sort of do-gooder documentary that's sort of starchy but nicely done, right, and and is about an important cause. That is the most boring kind of review to write that there is. And you mm-hmm. feel really mean saying, oh, this documentary is very boring in the way that it tells us about this incredibly important social problem that we otherwise wouldn't know about. So that's an example of just not fun criticism. But in general, I would say that neither very good nor very very bad reviews are more enjoyable to write than one another. What is enjoyable is to have something served up before you that you have something to say about. Right. So a mixed review can be really, really fun to write if you have strong mixed feelings, you know, right. as I right. did about Babylon, and not just sort of like, eh, this is fine. Right. All right, Steve, is it better to praise or to punish? Uh, I'm with Dana. I mean, as as you get older, you grow up, I think you lose your taste for blood in some sense and highly selective instances, something, I think it's something needs to almost morally outrage you uh, to get those juices flowing again and to really go after it with the full hatchet. Like you sort of take the hatchet out of its velvet case. It's beautifully polished and ready (laughs) and you wield it without pity when necessary, but then you clean it off and polish it up and you stick it back deep in the closet and um, save it for the special occasion. In the meantime, it's much more interesting in a world that's falling to shit to find things that you love and cherish and that you feel deserve a chance with an audience that it might not find, especially. I mean, you know, the the whole idea of the endorsements, Andy Bauer's great insight was that after being eggheads and probably largely poo-pooing most of, or not most, but poo-pooing at least one or two things every week that we'd seen or whatever, at the end, we would just simply be enthusiastic. And then secondly, I think that there, you know, it's surprisingly hard in life to learn how to live with ambivalence Right, learning to live with your capacity to love, learning to live with your capacity to hate—you um, know—those those are comparatively easy. And that that you know, um, there's a comfort to the binary, false or otherwise, um, and the and the blanket judgment. And much more interesting are the shades of gray, which is where we all live most of the time. Um, and to bring a suitably calibrated judgment to what someone was trying to do, even in an instance where they, in your estimation, failed. Um, And to find in all things its best self and virtue, as with people, you know, works of art, like there has to be some humanity here by definition, right? If like humanity means anything, it means all of us sort of all the time um, um, and and what we have in common, right? And it's like some, someone's trying, I think, I think in most instances to bring a piece of their humanity, actual hand, humanity to market or into public light and, and trying to honor that. I mean, there's just always a performance. There's always a line. There's always a shading. There's something. And I really just have I don't have the hatchet man in me anymore it was something I did kind of to a fault when I first started writing criticism and there's a joy to it in a way and I also think the world was different not just me um you know the internet was sort of underdeveloped and relatively inchoate when I first started publishing as a general interest writer or critic and 
and you felt as though the general drift of the kind of high neoliberal era was towards a sort of fatuous self-congratulation and, and optimism with absolutely no sense that there were that there was another medium of judgment other than the market, which was then just taken to be infallible. And you were put on notice by, I thought, a kind of synergistic relationship between the right, which always wants to tell you that non-market judgments are false, and uh, a, a optimist reign in criticism, which was just sort of all in on Britney. And, and Britney is wonderful, by the way. Um, you know, there too, I, I was wrong. But but nonetheless, like, you know, if you wanted to try to pitch an editor on the small, the unexpected, the obscure, a good luck in 98 to 2002, which is sort of when I got going. I mean, it was, I do think it was somewhat harder. Um, so all in all, unequivocally, I think it's harder to love than it is to hate. And why not assign yourself a high degree of difficulty when you're given the cushy job of just opinionating for a living? It's so interesting because both of you have have described sort of a evolution from a youthful embrace of the hatchet to realizing, you know, the, the, the impact that it carries and that there are sort of more complicated and richer tasks to undertake as a critic. As someone who, you know, apart from me on this show, as a writer, have not had a regular critical gig and so only write when moved to, I feel like the things that cause me to write and also the kind of critical tears that I feel most satisfied by on this show are when I feel like I can articulate well a response to a work that no one else has quite said but that needs to be said. Like I wrote a piece, I think in season two of Better Call Saul, just singing the praises of the show and arguing that it was on track, I thought, to be actually better than Breaking Bad, um, more subtle, more morally sophisticated, interested in more kind of pertinent things than, you know, the desert opera of the kind of meth-slinging madman. Um no one was quite saying that about that show then, and I just felt like it needed to be said and the praises needed to be sung and the and the kind of combination of artistry and subject needed to be extolled. And so I sat down and did the extolling. I would say the itch that I'm having right now, I found it very satisfying to go in on Avatar's portrayal of women in our discussion of that film, and I have yet to see just the freestanding essay of how fucked that portrayal is yet. And I have this like little itch in my back of my mind that I like want to read that somehow by someone. Um, and, and it's actually spurred on by a Culture Fest listener who sent me an interview that James Cameron did with Playboy about the first Avatar film in which he says to Playboy, real women are so complicated. And it was very important to me to give the Navi tits. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I knew there was something fucking fishy here. It is fucked up. Literally fishy in the new one. No, it's true. The the, the women in, in Avatar movies are, they can be the Earth mother, Navi, right? Pregnant shaman, Kate Winslet figure. Or they can be the the hot fish babe emerging from the sea. I guess Sigourney Weaver would be the closest thing to an actual female character in any of those movies. But she also transforms into hot, skinny, knobby girl. She's like manic pixie dream teen, having her little 
uh, you know, trippy underwater, whatever the hell's. Anyway, I, I, to me, when criticism feels fun to do is when it feels like the opinion that you have is one that hasn't quite been said in the way that you want to say it and you feel like it could advance the conversation. And so sometimes that's up and sometimes it's down, but uh, it's, it's more about the strength of the response and the uniqueness of the response um, that I feel makes criticism compelling to do. I also think it's really important, and I think there aren't enough critics that do this, to to wipe the, the slate clean every time you see a movie. You know, I mean, I almost have like a little ritual when I'm sitting down in a screening for a movie that I'm going to write on or talk on in this podcast where I sort of close my eyes, take a deep breath and just like let it be good. You know, even if you're in a bad mood or you didn't like that previous director's movie or you've never liked any movie starring that star or whatever, each movie is a new experience. And to whatever extent possible while you're watching it, I think you need to be this innocent viewer who wants to be pleased and made happy. I love that. All right. Well, thank you so much to listener John for asking this question. Thank you very much, Slate Plus members, for your support of Slate and its journalism and our show. We'll see you next week.